Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Elizabeth Rosenthal, who is the author of a new book entitled An American Sickness. And this is a book that could not have come at a better time. They always tell us timing is everything. If you're going to write a book that is designed to kind of pop the lid off of the big mysterious pot that makes up the healthcare infrastructure or the healthcare industrial complex in the United States, this would have been the time to do it. Elizabeth is an emergency room physician who left clinical practice to go work as a reporter for the New York Times, now the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News. And she is here today to dive into this book and dive into everything that is swirling around us literally today around healthcare in the United States and healthcare reform. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So this book comes out. You couldn't have predicted that sort of the date of publication and the intersection of healthcare reform were going to collide the way that they have? No, of course not. I mean, none of us in D.C. anticipated this. But I think one of the points of the book is whether we have the Republican health care plan or the Affordable Care Act, um, we really need to deal with this issue of health care costs and why we pay so much for health care. Because Um, You know, it was really one of the complaints about the Affordable Care Act was that premiums were going up for some people and co-pays and deductibles were going up. And that's not just within the Affordable Care Act. That was with those of us who have commercial insurance, too. So uh, none of these Rubik's Cubes fit together unless we deal with the cost issue. And um, Uh, So, no, I didn't know the Republicans would have their health plan, which obviously has a terrible CBO score so far. But an essential problem for any plan for our future is how do we control the costs and prices that we have in American medicine, which are so high compared to the rest of the world, and we don't get better care. I like the idea and the visual of the Rubik's Cube. There was a video that made the rounds on the internet the other day of the world records of people solving Rubik's Cubes, the three <laughs> yeah. by three, the six by six, the seven by seven, and it is unbelievably fast. And if only that was the case, <laughs> I, I've like, like many physicians, like anyone who's engaged and interested in this, there are definitely times where you kind of put your head in your hands and just, just sort of feel like, what is going on? And you have a very interesting strategic view, both as a reporter and as a physician. What What is going on? It feels almost like the fabric of the way we think about, look at, and want our healthcare to before, perform and behave is tearing apart. Yeah, I think what's going on is that we've ceded healthcare to business. And that doesn't mean that business is bad or it's bad to make a profit, but it does mean that the values of medicine are really different than the values of business. And that's what's so disturbed me. Um, you know, the business take on a system, whether it's healthcare or chicken processing or getting a jet off the ground is all about efficiency. It's all about revenue generation. It's all about return on investment. And that's not necessarily what makes for good healthcare. And in many cases, um, I think it makes for bad healthcare. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. There's this feeling that at some point healthcare shifted where it became viewed as almost a commodity. 
And when it's a commodity, as you say, it has a valuation attached to it. It has ways to extract wealth and money. But it's it should be, and, and it is, so much larger than that. And it seems like there's a real collision and tension with this idea of healthcare, our healthcare, your healthcare, my well-being, being a for-profit enterprise. Yeah. And, you know, I think what we see when we look at the healthcare system is that there are far more players who have nothing to do with medicine or healthcare than who do now. You know, the, the healthcare originally was a doctor and a patient, right? This is way back when, then a doctor and a patient in the hospital. Now there are venture capital firms, there are investors, there are, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are, are and the uh, insurance companies make a lot of money. You know, there are all these people, as someone said in my book, feeding from the trough of healthcare, And that means, you know, we're the food, we the patients are the food. And our wallets are kind of ultimately where the revenue comes from. And that's true whether we're insured or uninsured. I mean, if we're insured and lucky enough to be insured, we pay it through our premiums and deductibles, which are, as we all know, rising very, very quickly. And you know, I think those values that motivate physicians, you know, what do you learn in medical school? You know, who to whom is your duty owed? It's the patient. Well, that's not true in a system that's dominated by a lot of for-profit entities. To whom do they owe duty? It's their investors. And so there's this really basic conflict that we see playing out in our healthcare system today. And I guess I wouldn't have a problem with the profit motive if it was aligned better with the instincts of medicine and doing well by the patients, but so often it's not anymore. It seems like that force of, as you say, this feeding from the trough of medicine, you would need something to regulate that. You would need an entity <laughs> to say, this is incorrect because what you're doing is you are taking us away from the tenets of medicine that we all ascribe to both patients and physicians, right? We swear, we swear an oath to do things a certain way. If we're moving away from that, then you would, you would hope that there would be some sort of regulatory body. Now you look around the world and obviously what we're talking about is having a government intervention, right? Around the world, governments have much tighter controls over the way healthcare is delivered. We don't have that here. And that brings up that secondary extraordinary force that's happening right now. This is being debated as you and I are having this conversation is how is this profit driven entity going to be regulated, if at all? Well, and certainly what's happening in Congress right now is a move towards less regulation, not more, which I think <laughs> right. is what's worrying a lot of people, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, we hear from hospitals and insurers and physicians often, well, there's too much regulation. And I think, you know, the, the problem is maybe we're regulating the wrong things. You know, we're drowning people in paperwork, which I get is really, really onerous and with forms to fill out and with compliance exams, things like that. And some of that is certainly necessary. But we're not regulating this much more essential part of medicine, which every other country does control in some way, which is the prices and the costs. And, and we rely on the market to do that. And I think everywhere you look as a physician or a patient, you see that's not working. 
you know, the prices are just going up and up and up. And, and, you know, I hear constantly from physicians who say, well, I wrote this script for this old medication and, and, you know, the patient went to the pharmacy and called me and said, Hey doctor, you know, that's $300. I had no idea. You know, and I think that's the problem. Neither the physicians nor the patients in most cases have any idea what this stuff costs. And so we're all kind of, you know, uh, uh, like thunderstruck by, wow, how did that bill get to be that way? And we all feel pretty helpless. And I hear that equally from many physicians as from patients, like, how can I do something? What can I do? As you were saying that I was smiling to myself because I remember the first time I gave a patient a prescription for colchicine, which is a commonly used medication to manage an acute flare-up of gout. And I yep. got that phone call back because it's now Colchris and it's extraordinarily expensive. This is a medication that's been used for decades. It's pennies. And now all of a sudden it's hundreds of dollars. Right. And you know why that is? It's because the FDA, and again, the, the healthcare in our country today is a classic case of the road to hell is paved in good intentions. Um, <laughs> right. You know, really, 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 the FDA wanted that drug tested. It was a centuries old drug, and it had never been tested for side effects up to FDA standards. So they put out a, an RFP, or I don't know, probably is called something different in the FDA government world, but saying any company that's willing to test this up to FDA standards for side effects and potential harms um, will get a three-year market exclusivity on the drug. And, you know, it sounds fair enough. And they probably never thought, you know, holy cow, someone's going to take this opportunity and run with it and charge $5 a pill for this ancient medicine. But that's exactly what happened. And of course, you know, it had been used for centuries. They found that there are no real problems with colchicine. It's fine. <laughs> but then they rebranded it Colchris and, you know, jack up the price and everyone is stuck paying it. If we look up from above, you had also mentioned something around this idea of forces, changes, events were transpiring and we didn't really know they were happening. One of the big ones being drug pricing. Yeah. There's been... It's not an intentional obfuscation, I don't think, although maybe I come off as, say, as a bit naive when I say that, but physicians, providers, patients, both in parallel, were not as educated as they could have been around the rapid changing forces in healthcare and why it was becoming so expensive. But it seems yeah. like we're in the period of a bit of an awakening, where if we don't understand it yet, at least we're realizing we don't understand it yet. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, for many, many decades, insurance basically covered medical costs pretty well. And our uh, employers, if we were lucky to have insurance, covered our premiums and there weren't very much, there wasn't very much in the way of deductibles and co-payments. So what happens if you're a business faced with that scenario? It's a great economic opportunity. Like no one's going to squawk if you start charging more. And so I think what happened was in that era when we were all kind of flying blind, drug prices started rising. And I remember I practiced during the 90s when the HIV drugs, HIV drugs first came to market and they were $10,000 a year and everyone was like outraged. That, that was so much money. No one could believe it. But, you know, now $10,000 a year for a drug, that seems kind of normal. And I think what happened is um, now we're faced with those $100,000 drugs, and now we are experiencing the premiums and the co-payments and the deductibles more. And so we're going, holy cow, When? how did it get to be that high? And it kind of happened while we weren't looking, but now we're stuck 
um, paying the price for being inattentive and complacent so long as it felt like somebody else was paying. And there's also that tension of who cares how much it costs? HIV medications are keeping people alive. So we're going to prescribe them. We're going to use them. And that's not our problem to figure out. My problem is this person is, is ill and we have options, tools and resources available to help them and to help them live the life that they wanted to live. That's what we're here to do. So we are going to do it. But you're right. When there are forces in the background that change the paradigm while that relationship between doctor and patient is happening, you're right. Then all of a sudden it's, it's amplified by a factor of 10, a hundred or more. Yeah. And I think what happened, you know, at the time when those HIV meds came out, there was a lot of pushback, both from patient groups and from physician groups saying, this is outrageously expensive. But we kind of, it was kind of like a callus. We all got kind of inured to the idea that, oh, drugs are expensive. And, you know, and, and of course, a physician and a patient is going to want to use a drug and is going to be kind of captive to using certain drugs at whatever price because they're necessary or they're really, really helpful. So, you know, you're not going to, you can, you can kind of squawk a little bit and go, wow, it shouldn't be that expensive. And then of course what happens is, you know, I'm going to sound really cynical now, but the the pharmaceutical companies will maybe buy off the physician, buy a bunch of free samples and buy off the patient by saying, don't worry, it looks expensive, but we're going to pay your copayment. And then the prices go up even more. (laughs) And so, you know, I think it's time where we really do need physicians and patients to take a hard look at prices and push back. That doesn't mean not prescribing them. It means starting to squawk more and also to look for the government to, to intervene in, in more effective ways or in some ways, because this is what you learn if you look around the world, that in every other country, um, there are large scale negotiations for drug prices. There would not be the tolerance of the kind of prices we pay in the U.S. And because we deal with it one on one individually, we feel and we are, in fact, not very powerful to do anything about it. But this is where large scale negotiation comes in. And that doesn't mean, you know, people have this notion of big negotiations as the government telling doctors what to do. And and that's not really how it works in a lot of countries. In many other countries, the physicians are involved in that large-scale negotiation. Scientists are involved in that negotiation. So they can say, what should this drug be worth? How great is it compared to what was there before? And how much should we recommend that our government pay for it? And in that way, you kind of get a national pricing that makes medical sense, um, and also probably financial sense. It's not like pharmaceutical companies are losing money when they can't charge $5,000 a month for an MS drug. I mean, in other countries, those same drugs that are $5,000 here are, you know, a fraction of tenth of that cost in other places. So what you're talking about now is it feels a little bit of how do we start to unspool this, right? How do we start to break up this quagmire? And there's obviously so many contributing pieces to it. So let's go further back because we do want, that's what you've written this book. You've been on the healthcare beat for the New York times for many years. There aren't many people who are going to understand the roadmap better, both how we got here and what the road forward looks like. So 
we're not going to solve it in a swoop. We're going to chip it away. We're going to take pieces at a time. What's the low hanging fruit? What are the first steps for us to start to move things in a direction that benefits the United States as a whole, that benefits us as a population? Well, I think one step is we have to control pharmaceutical prices. That's clear. Um, There have been bipartisan proposals to do so by allowing Medicare to negotiate drug pricing. The VA does that already. Um, There have been other bipartisan proposals to allow importation from Canada or from other countries in a limited and controlled way. Um, Both of those have you know, some issues, but also both of them would bring down pharmaceutical prices significantly. So, um, you know, I think we have to decide what kind of route we want to take, but we can't continue to do nothing because um, that price is huge. I think also, you know, on a more personal front, when you go to your physician, I tell patients to kind of be more active. And I tell physicians to think prices. So if I'm, for example, a patient who my doctor says, you need an MRI of your knee, I want to be able to say to my doctor, you know, okay, fine, there are 10 different centers around your office that can do that MRI in a kind of high quality way. Which one's charging the le- the least? Which one is in my network and has a reasonable price? I mean, what you see in all the studies is the price for an MRI within a square mile can vary by a factor of 10. So I want my physician on my behalf to be a shopper and to know which one is you know, going to do that MRI for $300. And to say to the guy who's charging $3,000, I'm not referring patients to you anymore because you're ripping them off. And P.S., now that we have high deductible plans, it is the patient who's going to be paying for that MRI. And, you know, it, it, it is money poorly spent. So, you know, a, another little example, when I need blood tests now, I know my physician's computer is programmed to order those blood tests from the hospital lab where he practices. That's a really expensive place to get ordinary blood tests done. So I now ask him to fill out the form to send it to Quest or LabCorp, where a test that at the hospital literally would cost $700 can cost $10. So, you know, I know that's not going to change the medical system, but it will save me money. And I think equally important, it will start sending signals to the hospitals, to the labs, to the pharmaceutical companies that we, and I mean both patients and physicians, are going to act like consumers. We're going to act like we deserve a good deal. And we're going to be conscious of price, not not when it's life-saving, but when it's not giving us anything in return for the excess money we spend. And there's a lot of that in our system. That transaction right there, the person in front of the physician saying, I'm happy to do this test, or I agree that I'm gonna, I need an MRI of my knee, but now we're going to negotiate a little bit and we're going to look at the preferred provider and I'm going to do a Google search and see which one's cheaper. And because you can see all of that sort of thing happening. That is going, that, that certainly seems like on the surface that has the power to change paradigms very, very quickly and even on a scalable level. Well, I hope so. I think, you know, part of the problem is that we've been very complacent. We haven't been watching these expenses and these prices go up. So I think we just have to start sending really strong signals 
to um, our employers, to the hospitals, to the pharmaceutical companies, to the device makers, everyone that we care that, you know, we really can't afford to spend 20% of the GDP or 20% of my household income on healthcare costs each year. That's not reasonable. So um, I, and I think, you know, in the absence of such signals, the prices have skyrocketed, and that's exactly what you would expect from an economic point of view. Um, and, and you know, you look at it in, in parts of the country where this has started to happen. You're in California. Some of the big employers in California do something called reference pricing, where they say, um, what should we pay for a hip or knee replacement? And they go to researchers and say, how much would it cost for a good hip replacement in California? And they've gotten a figure that's something like $40,000. So then they say to their employees, okay, this is what we're going to pay for a hip replacement. You find a place that will do it for that amount and we'll pay the price. But if you go above that, you're going to pay the difference. And the thing that's really interesting to me is not only do patients become better at thinking about costs, they become you know, sensitive at least to, am I getting value for that $100,000 hip replacement? But also what happened, which was even more fascinating, is a lot of the hospitals that were charging $100,000 plus for a hip replacement immediately turned around and said, oh, we can do it for 40. You know, it's just, there's no countervailing price pressure at the moment. And that's where we all have to get active in, in creating that countervailing pressure. So to create that pressure, you're going to need a level of engagement from a number of parties and obviously yep. patients, patient advocacy groups, things like this, physicians, employers, all of them, they're going to be on that spectrum where on the one hand, they're in the learned helplessness phenomenon and they're not going to do anything all the way to the other end where it's rioting in the streets. Where are we now? <laughs> and where do we need to get to so that the meter starts to move in a constructive and effective way? I hope we're going to get out of this learned helplessness phase. And that's part of why I wrote the book. I wanted people to understand it doesn't have to be this way. We can react. We can take more control over this. You know, um, even when you look at like big employers who've just like us been kind of insensitive to these costs. I mean, someone said to me, Boeing negotiates like crazy over jet engines why doesn't it negotiate on its health care costs it's it's kind of been asleep at the wheel it's starting to now it's starting to do deals with hospitals for health care for its employees so i think we're all waking up now that's partly because i think the medical industry the healthcare industry kind of went a little bit too far. They kind of pushed and pushed and pushed and raised prices into a point where, where, you know, it just felt absurd, but also because we're now all feeling those costs more as a result of the rising premiums, the deductibles, the co-payments and employers feel it because I see for my current employer, the Kaiser family foundation, how much we spend on healthcare costs. And, you know, for a lot of employers around the country, when people want to know, hey, why haven't I gotten a raise in the last three years? It's because your employer is paying more and more for those health care costs. So I think we have there are a lot of incentives to wake up now. I hope the book, in addition to kind of helping people understand how we got here, makes them understand that we don't have to be passive and that we should encourage our employers and our physicians to not be passive with us. Because the industry is doing what an industry is going to do, a for-profit industry. It, 
it maximizes its profits, its return on investments. So if you want to see the, um, you know, the new uh, pet scanner as a, a business investment where you want to just do as many as you can and get the maximal ROI, um, which these machines come with now, they come with financing plans that show hospitals how much you have to use this thing so you can recoup your investment. I mean, what is that about? Or if you want to see it as a, an important medical device that can give you, in certain circumstances, hugely valuable information. Those are two very different lenses through which to look at that machine. And I think we have to kind of make sure that our lens, the health lens, um, is paramount. So now we interpose the elephant in the room, which is what is transpiring in, in Washington right now <laughs> sure. around yeah. health care reform and potential yeah. changes to the Affordable Care Act. To yep. keep with the momentum that you describe in the book and you've described so eloquently now, people feeling empowered, feeling engaged and doing these different things to start to move the meter. What happens if the model that your research and that progression is based around gets upended? Well, I think that's going to be a big problem. Um, I think the Affordable Care Act clearly had um, some things that needed fixing that were largely because it didn't deal directly with pricing. The Obama administration felt it needed buy-in from the hospitals and the insurers and um, and more and pharmaceutical firms. So it, it, it kind of was silent on that issue. Um, what we're seeing now, um, as we see from the CBO report, it's going to leave a lot more people uninsured. It's going to lot. Uh, it's going to leave a lot of people with uh, what the Obama administration would have considered uh, junk insurance, which doesn't cover a lot of things, um, and it will leave more people with pre-existing conditions uninsurable. And I think what we're seeing at the town hall meetings now. Uh, as we see people getting up and screaming at their congressmen, is that's not okay for Americans. That's not okay. The people who newly got insurance through Medicaid expansion are saying, wait a second, I didn't understand that in repealing Obamacare, you were going to take that away from me. So I think there has been an awakening. And I think that's why the Republicans are having such a hard time getting this bill um, even to the floor for debate. So we'll see what happens. You know, I'm still a journalist, so I can't, I'm not going to predict, you know, will it fly or won't it fly? But I think some of the, uh, some of the things that could happen if it does fly and we, a lot of people lose insurance is I think we're going to have to start turning to the states. And this is one of the things that's kind of interesting because the states have a lot of power when it comes to health insurance, health coverage, medical practice. And they haven't really done what they could do either because we always look to Washington to solve this on a national basis. So if, as some people have suggested, that under the GOP plan, some, com some counties could end up bare with no insurers offering plans, well, then states might step in. States are going to have to step in. States are going to have to step in to figure out what to do for Medicaid, for nursing home care, which um, much of which is covered by Medicaid now. So I'm hoping we'll see some creative health designs in the states. Well, actually, let me take a step back. I'm hoping, first of all, what we'll see is that until 
there's a Republican plan that really addresses health care needs. It won't pass. Um, I'm, I'm kind of with President Obama, who said at the end, fine, if they have something that addresses America's health care needs for better care with cheaper costs, fine, go for it. But I don't think we've seen that now, as the CBO score shows. I think if it doesn't pass and we're left with Obamacare, we need to do take the next steps to improve it. It it did some really important things, but it obviously wasn't our final destination. And I think we have to get back to, um, you know, what is the national responsibility in in promoting fair prices? Um, you know, Hillary Clinton at the end of the campaign last year suggested maybe we should lower the Medicare age. Um, we could think about that. We could allow for a Medicare buy-in for people who are under the Medicare age. We could allow for some kind of national pricing of, subs- of prescription drugs or national negotiation. We could allow for importation. I mean, there are a lot of things we could do, and there are a lot of things states could do, too, to make this system work better. And as you said, we got to this crazy inflationary place through a slow process my hunch is that we're going to start unspooling it slowly, but that that's not an excuse for doing nothing. And I think this feeling of, oh, what can I do? I think it's really important on every sector right now to do what they can do for state insurance commissioners who've been kind of passive, um, not yours in California, but in many parts of the country, in allowing provider directories, for example, to be hugely inaccurate. They could stop that really easily and really quickly, but they haven't. Um, I think we should all look to see who our state insurance commissioner is and vote someone who doesn't speak for patients out of office and get someone who's a consumer advocate in. I think we should all be looking at our senators and congressmen to see, okay, you guys, you all get really upset when there's an EpiPen moment or Martin Shkreli. But how are you voting on these bills to allow Medicare to negotiate or to allow drug importation? What's your actual plan to bring down costs? Um, And I think we all, when we visit our physicians or go to our local hospitals, have to start saying, okay, you know, why is that test costing $5,000? You know, why is my two-day hospital stay costing $70,000? I'm not going to pay it. It's not reasonable. So um, lots more noise, lots more pushback. <laughs> that is a fascinating to-do list that you just provided <laughs> to to the listeners of the show. And that, I think, is the point, right? This is extraordinarily complicated. It can feel very, very daunting. But to just sort of have it laid out, look, here are some interesting things you can try. And then we're going to need creative thinking. We're going to need fresh ideas. We may need to upend things. Something that worked many, many years ago may not be quite as applicable today, or maybe it is, but we got to figure out which, which box that all these different components are going to fit in. You are right. definitely teed up for a sequel to your book because <laughs> this is all going to figure itself out and we're going to see where homeostasis is in the next couple of months, I would imagine. <laughs> I'll be watching. That's right. That's right. And then you're going to need to write the uh, the epilogue or the, the updated version quite quickly because I imagine that folks that have gravitated to this book, and I know there are many, they're going to say, hey, revise this because we need the update. <laughs> I've already agreed to do a new prologue um for the next year's edition. So um, hopefully we'll have something more concrete to say by, by the fall. There you go. The book is American Sickness. It's a really important read. 
And this is an extraordinary time for that book to come out. So thank you so much for joining us to discuss it and to discuss what's happening. Again, as you and I are having this conversation, this is unfurling right in front of us. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.